0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Today is from Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for, fear, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you, you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with great, with great, great joy and fear and, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So an author named Adrian Warnick said, in a compelling film or a book, the plot builds, leading to a sort of critical point, And there seems to be no way out. Things are on the edge of disaster. And then suddenly, in the last moment, a solution is found. And he goes on to say that the Bible is sort of like that. Showing first man's total inability to save himself. But then the turning point is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, imagine with me uh, living in that tension on the edge. Recognizing your lack. Recognizing your inability. Recognizing you're not enoughness recognizing your desperate need but then not knowing the rest of the story without the hope of the turning point where does this go maybe you've been there in your life maybe you're there right now my wife read me a portion of a book she was reading years ago that really stuck with me it followed the story of a young woman raised in a sort of remote village in africa that then later migrated to europe and she tells a story of in her village they had one copy of the Bible. But what was unique about this Bible is that it was complete all the way up to Matthew chapter 27, and then the remainder was ripped out. It was missing. Think about this with me. Because of this Bible, the village had knowledge that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Because of this Bible, this village knew that God is a generous and a loving God that created humanity to give. That despite God's perfect love and his offer of freedom, that humanity had rebelled and sinned and welcomed death and enmity into the story. They knew the prophecies about a Messiah who would come and usher in the kingdom of God and his healing reign. They even had enough understanding from this Bible to know that this promised one was to die in order to make us right with God, to heal the problem within us and to make us new. All of these scriptures ramping up and up and up and up to that point of redemption, but then torn. Immediately after Matthew 27, verse 46, where Jesus is on the cross dying and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then silence, leaving what I can only imagine the world's biggest question mark what happened is that it well there were women in the first century in jerusalem in a similar predicament they'd followed jesus they'd seen his miracles they'd heard his teachings they'd been impacted by his life and his love and then immediately following his death they seemed to be asking similar questions like wait is that it What now? Where where do we go from here? And so we're told that on the third day, interestingly, as the other disciples are frightened and behind locked doors, and maybe even some of the disciples are leaving Jerusalem entirely, a small group of women went to see the tomb. And what they discover there has changed the course of human history. You don't even have to believe to, to confess that. And what, uh, the events that happened here have changed the lives of countless people, many of whom sit next to you today, and by trusting, this is the good news that can change your life as well. But how? How? Well, an American poet once said, instructions for living a life. I love the simplicity of that. Here's how to live. Pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. Now, I highly doubt that she intended for this, but it kind of seems to make a perfect outline for a resurrection sermon, so we're gonna go with it. So instructions for living a life, number one, pay attention, turn to your neighbor and tell them, kindly, pay attention. And the reason I say pay attention is because this is Matthew's hope right now. Six times in this short passage, he's alluding to some sort of movement of looking In fact, look at me in verse two. And behold, look, look, pay attention. There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified he is not here for he is risen as he said come see the place where he lay now the claim here is absolutely incredible take this in jesus who was crucified and buried rose from the dead on the third day it's an incredible claim i know And as these women approach, there's this very dramatic scene. There's an earthquake, and a brilliant angel descends, and he rolls the stone away, and then he sits on it. I don't know why, but I love that. He just, done, sits on it. But let me ask you this. Have you ever considered why? Why does the angel roll away the stone? Well, despite the way that it may initially seem to us, the reader, it was not So that Jesus could get out. In fact, the way that Matthew tells the story, by the time the women show up and by the time the angel descends, Jesus is already gone. He's left the building. So if it wasn't so that Jesus could get out, then why is the stone rolled away? And I believe the answer is so that we could get in. And starting with these first witnesses here. This is the angel's invitation. Come and see. Pay attention. I love that the angel doesn't say, hey, nothing to see here. Take my word for it. Go quickly. No, 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 no. He says, look for yourself. Come, look into this. Pay attention. And what we, the reader, need to do is really pay attention to the witnesses here. The first eyewitnesses of the resurrection are women. Women. And this is important for a few different reasons. Number one is because it's dignifying to women. The honor of being the first to see and encounter the resurrected Jesus and then commissioned to go tell about it is given to women in a time and a place where this would have been completely unheard of. But also, women served as witnesses. A very important role in this whole equation. And they serve as witnesses in a time in history when a woman's testimony was not seen as reliable and it wouldn't even hold up in court. Now, why do I share that? Because if Matthew and the other gospel writers were trying to persuade us readers of some sort of made-up story, if he was trying to convince us of some sort of myth or fable, he certainly would not have chosen women for this role. He would have chosen the most reputable person in order for the claim to stick but instead the honor goes to women now to say that jesus didn't rise from the dead i have to imagine that there are people here today saying i don't buy it and i'm really glad that you're here maybe you're just like i I just don't buy it i'm here because my family member invited me we've got a nice brunch later and this was the deal i get free food and we're really glad that you're here. But I want you to think about this. To say that Jesus didn't rise, to say that the resurrection never happened means, whether you know it or not, it means that you are aligning yourself with some other counterclaim. You are believing something about what happened here. One claim, I, okay, kids are going wild right now. I love it. Hey, maybe you've just, the microphone up just a little bit. I want eardrums bleeding by the end of this service. Okay, but I love it. One claim is to say that the historic Christ never actually was crucified. That he, unlike our boy Tom Cruise, had a stunt double for his, all of his, you know, stunts. And so it wasn't Jesus, but it was someone else on the cross. It's a claim. But what's interesting is it's actually this was Muhammad, the founder of Islam, his claim. And to to think this about the resurrection events is essentially to believe someone who lived 500 years after the events of the resurrection over the firsthand eyewitnesses, over the testimony of these women, and as Paul says, over the testimony of 500 eyewitnesses. So you're choosing 500 years of separation over 500 firsthand eyewitnesses. You can go that route. Or some say he was crucified but he didn't actually die. All this resurrection nonsense, it was really just Jesus being resuscitated, which by the way, is to believe a miracle in and of itself. The the, the scourging, the whipping, the beating, the piercing, the agonizing from Roman soldiers who were trained killers, who did not have a concern about humane treatment, and then somehow Jesus is the exception of not dying, and then this Jesus, who is on the brink of death, recently resuscitated, somehow gets on his feet, moves the stone, moves past guarded, uh, armed guards, unnoticed, and is never seen again. That's an option. Or you can say that the crucified body of Jesus was stolen away by his disciples. You know what I love about this passage? Matthew actually presents a counterclaim. He's not scared. He's not afraid. He's like, here's what they were saying. And it's the claim that Jesus' scared disciples, who just days before betrayed him and ran, and when they were asked by children if they were with him, they're like, no, I don't even know the guy, somehow got the courage to go stealth mode in the middle of the night to go overcome armed guards, move the stone, hide the body to never be seen again in order to make up a story that would cost cost all of them but one their lives. So here's why I'm saying this. Either way, whichever claim you choose to believe, you're taking a leap today, aren't you? You're taking a leap. The stone rolled back is an invitation extended to you and I today to come and see, to pay attention, to look into it, to consider these things for yourself. You you owe it to yourself to look into this. And the reason I bring this up also is because if you determine that Jesus is not risen, then I'm telling you right now, you should want nothing to do with this guy. You shouldn't be here. (laughs) Paul would say, if Christ isn't risen, we are the most to be pitied. We are a pathetic group of losers. If he's a fable, if he's a myth, if Christ is some sort of of lunatic, he is not worth your time. Go watch the masters. But if Christ really is risen, that changes everything. Then he's worthy to be followed. And he's worthy to be worshiped. And he's worthy to be given our whole lives. Pay attention. Secondly, you guys still with me? How are you in the back? There is room up front, just telling you. Um, Secondly, be astonished. Be astonished. After the encounter with the angel, seeing this empty tomb, it says that the women who followed Jesus went away with fear and great joy, which means their hearts were filled with awe and wonder. A professor of psychology at UC Berkeley once said that you could make the case, you could make the claim that our culture today is what he described as awe-deprived. Awe-deprived. And that at the center of our experience of dread, at the center of our experience of isolation, at at the center of our experience of anxiety and insecurity, is a gaping void where awe and wonder belong. But when we begin to pay attention and when we experience astonishment, it draws us out of the emptiness of ourselves and into a much bigger and brighter world. I'm not even talking Christianity right now, I'm just talking social sciences. Social scientists have conducted countless studies proving that we are more compassionate We are more charitable, we are more self-sacrificing, we are more um, generous with our time, with our money. We are just all around better people when we experience ongoing awe. Now what is awe? Some have defined awe as a feeling of being in the presence of something that is vast, that transcends our understanding of the universe. That's sort of a general way of describing it. Theologians describe awe as a sort of reverential respect, a mix of fear and of wonder. And we as humans, no matter who you are, at what age you are, what religious background you have, we were hardwired for awe. That's why we search for joy. That's why we search for pleasure. That's why we search for beauty and adventure and fulfillment. That's why we're all, if we're to be honest, all hedonists. We're obsessed with the thrill. Uh, I show this every Easter, I think, uh, but there's a scene from The Incredibles that I love. Mr. Incredible has had a long day at the office. It's a hard day. Maybe he got fired. I can't remember. And he's getting out of his tiny car, and he slams the door, and he turns to see this little neighborhood boy on a three-wheeler just standing there, and he's like, what are you waiting for? He says, I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. That's us. That's us. Whether we recognize it or not, that, that desire to be amazed, that, that, that desire to be wowed, is a craving to see God, to be moved and captivated by his glory. And at the end of the day, we are going to search one of two places. We will either look to created things to fulfill it for us, or we'll look to the creator We're going to look to things that may be shiny and new but will fade and perish and disappoint us or we will look to the one who is eternal whom even the grave cannot keep down. Now, look at me again in Matthew's account here. The scene is intended to be a little bit ironic because the dead man in the tomb is now alive outside the tomb and the living guards outside the tomb are now like dead men. See what he did there? And they are so overwhelmed by the magnitude of this event that they tremble. The same word for tremble here is used earlier in the passage for earthquake. The event that caused the ground to shake now shakes them to their core. I love this. Even enemies of Jesus Christ can't help but tremble at the presence of the empty tomb. The late John John Stott once said that if you read the Bible you will find that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ had a moderate reaction to him. And I want you to consider your reaction today. And he said there are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away. Or they were absolutely smitten by him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. They hated him, Or freaked out by him or like the women worshiped him no one ever had a moderate reaction to a true encounter with jesus and if you're not astonished then it means that you're probably not paying attention last month i had a conversation with someone who was talking about his journey to faith and his growing understanding of the gospel. And he told me, I think to myself like, it's just too good to be true. And I said, don't ever lose that wonder. Don't ever lose that astonishment. But the sad reality is that we can lose the wonder. And who loses the wonder? It's those of us who are familiar with the story. For those of us who are like, this is not my first rodeo, I had my Easter jacket already set aside in the closet. I know the routine. I know the Easter thing. I know the story. I'm familiar with it. I don't need to pay attention because I already know it up here. We are at risk of losing our amazement if we haven't already. Paul Tripp described this experience that maybe um, a lot of us can associate with today. He described it as the ability to look at wonders things specifically designed to move you and produce in you breathless amazement and not be moved by them anymore. And then listen to these words. It's the sad state of yawning in the face of glory. Yeah, yeah, Easter. No one's gonna yawn after that point, I can guarantee it. It's actually something that Jesus himself pointed to in the Gospel of Matthew earlier. For he said, "This people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes they, uh, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them." The women rejoice with overwhelming awe and worship the Lord. The soldiers tremble in fear, roll over like dead men. And if we're to be honest, many of us sit here today with dull hearts, yawning in the face of glory. Why? Well, you and I are in an ongoing battle for our attention. Never-ending competition for our dwindling attention span, or as the Bible would describe it, for our adoration. There's a whole world of study, I I wish I had time to explain, but the whole world of study called attention economics. That as information and access to information increases, our attention is now our most prized commodity. As we are bombarded with a countless stream of information through social media outlets and news outlets, and just very impressive visual displays day after day, everything bombarding us, it's increasingly difficult now to be captivated by just one source. And when we're wowed by so many different things, what we'll find is that it's increasingly more difficult to ever really be wowed by anything. An author named Mike Cosper described the present moment as an age where our sense of spiritual wonder and hope of possibilities has been drained out. And he described it as a spiritual desert. And he said what we face is the temptation to accept the dryness of that desert as the only possible world. But the empty tomb calls to us from across the centuries and says, no. No. This is not the only possible world. Jesus rose to bring about a new world. That is the message of Easter, that God's has, God has unveiled a new world through Jesus Christ, and he has invited us to belong to it. Now, the bad news is this, that many of us come today tragically unimpressed. Just admit it. You're just, like, not impressed. That's okay to be honest about that tragically unimpressed. But the good news of the gospel is that the glory of God is greater than our boredom and is powerful enough to conquer even the most stubborn apathy that clings tightly to our hearts and minds. Think about this. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then he is more than capable of resurrecting our desensitized unimpressed overstimulated minds and hearts this very day come and see it's an invitation to revive our wonder where at the empty tomb where Jesus rose to give to us beauty and life and freedom and fulfillment and eternity this is what i'm urging you today to do to behold the sacrifice that Jesus endured for you to recognize the depths of selfishness and sin that Jesus is willing to rescue you from. To open your eyes to the offer of total forgiveness, to look at the resurrection power that is able to raise Jesus from the dead and now fill our lives with incredible hope. Why is this important? Like if it happened, maybe you're like, okay, I believe it happened. But what is my response to it? What does that matter? It matters because what captures your astonishment controls your life. What we behold, we become. For better or for worse. Let me ask you this question. Are you becoming becoming the person that you deeply desire to become? The person that you dreamed of becoming, is that happening in your life? Are you moving more towards that vision of life? Are the things that hold your attention, the things that have temporarily wowed you right now, are they filling your life with more hope? Are they making you more courageous? Are they making you more compassionate? Are they making you the kind of person that other people want to be around? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, for those who have their eyes and their ears open to encounter Jesus by faith, we are now becoming what we are beholding. And I'm not just talking about a little bit v- better version of yourself. I'm talking about something entirely new. Someone that resembles the very son of God, Jesus Christ himself, but the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look, finally, I tell about it. Let's tell about it. Verse seven. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Those who encounter the risen Jesus become incurable evangelists. Incurable evangelists. Paying attention is what leads to being astonished. And being astonished is what leads to this desire to tell other people about it. And so if we lack that desire to tell people about Jesus, what do we need to do? we need to reverse engineer the process. And we need to go back to the beginning and ask the question, have I truly encountered Christ? Have I seen him for who he is? Now I've met a lot of people who've told me I'm not, a, I'm not very good at evangelism, I suck at evangelism, you know, I, I just, I'm just not good at it. And kindly, I just totally disagree. I think you're full of it. (laughs) I think you're actually a really good evangelist, whether you know it or not. Let me ask you, when was the last time you asked someone, you've got to see this? When was the last time you told someone, oh, did you see that new episode? Or have you seen that new show? Or have you tried this new restaurant? Or have you, you heard about this job opening? Or have you heard this new song? Or did you hear this new album dropped? Or on and on and on. Anytime we share good news, Anytime we brag about our kids, anytime we spill the tea about some juicy gossip, anytime we tell someone about a coupon online, anytime we post a picture, we are sharing something that we believe is good news. We've been training our whole life for this. We know what we're doing. We're actually really good at this. But unlike so many of the things that we share with others, The good news of the gospel is not trivial. It's life, it's hope, it's freedom, it's eternity. Why wouldn't we tell other people about this? The fact that we have the rest of the story the fact that we know what happens after Matthew chapter 27, the fact that our Bibles don't abruptly end at Matthew 27 is because these brave women told about it. And the fact that we are here today is because someone told us about it. And the fact that someone will soon come to Christ is because God is calling us to tell them about it. See how that works? We are here because someone was brave enough to tell us. The question I leave with you is, will you tell others as well? And on that, I have so much more to tell you. (laughs) But I'm just going to have to invite you to come back next week. As we explore what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple of Jesus. Amen? He's risen. Amen. Let's pray.